Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Warriors in their own words is brought to you by The Honor Project, committed to putting the heroes of our nation on record. This presentation is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Robert Bob Hoover is one of history's greatest aviators. His career spanned from barnstorming and prop planes to dogfighting in World War II, and then onto flight testing supersonic jets and performing spectacular aerobatic demonstrations. Smithsonian's Air and Space magazine named Hoover number three on their list of all-time great pilots. Bob Hoover's love of flight began as a young boy growing up in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, I started out as a youngster building models like so many others, and and that led to a strong desire to wish to fly. And hearing stories about Charles Lindbergh, Jimmy Doolittle, and Roscoe Turner further whetted my appetite to want to really get into it seriously. So at, at 16, I soloed, and I went into the Air National Guard on my 18th birthday. And I was an enlisted person in the Air Guard. And I had all this flying by then, and the pilots within the squadron, the 105th Observation Squadron in Nashville, Tennessee, they were pretty generous to those of us who already knew how to fly, and they let us, the airplanes all had dual controls, and they let us fly frequently. So I built up a lot of experience uh, before I went off to the military flight training. And I had a choice of staying there with the squadron when they lowered the age limit. You had to be 21 to be a commissioned officer. And they lowered the age limit to 18. And I took the written test and the flight test and passed those, but I would have had an S in my wings, which meant service pilot and no combat. So I elected when I got an opportunity to get an appointment to go to flight training to go to that so I could end up uh, without any restrictions for combat. What was the distinct? What was the service pilot distinction as opposed to another pilot? What was well, a service—you could get a service pilot rating if you did pass those uh, written exams and the flight check, but you wouldn't have had the combat training that was needed to actually go into combat. For example, if you wanted to fly bombers, you wouldn't have the bombing technique, or if you were flying fighters, uh, you wouldn't have the background to hit a target, so to speak. And that was the requirement for going through flight training. So the service pilot was for transport aircraft? He could, he could ferry airplanes. Uh, he could operate within a, a, a service depot. A lot of functions, but not combat. So what year was it that you went to, to flight training with the Army Air Corps? I, I went in in 41 and uh, graduated in 42. 
and I was overseas in, uh, by the end of 42. I went to England. And then from there I was sent down to North Africa. And at the time I had probably more flying experience for anyone than anyone my age. So they pulled me out and I thought I was going to combat and they pulled me from this group I was with and put me in a depot. And they were bringing airplanes over from the states on ships and crates. They were assembled there in Casablanca and Oran and Lucerna, a lot of places in North Africa. But the first base that we had was in Oran and I flew there for two or three months and just dozen airplanes a day. It was a fighter pilot's dream. Uh, the airplanes had never flown, they'd just assembled them and I'd take them up and put them through their paces and fire the guns and get in another one. What kind of airplanes were these? Uh, P-40s, P-39s, P-38s, uh, Spitfires, Hurricanes, A-35s, and then I'd fly all the damaged airplanes that came back uh, from combat bombers, transports. So it was a paradise for a young person. Uh, I just turned 21 when I got uh, down to Africa. There's a real learning curve for me. Is this where you acquired your initial propensity for tests and evaluation? I mean, is this working with these different kinds of airplanes, learning the different parameters? Well, it, it gave me a, a good background of adapting myself to different equipment as the years passed along because airplanes all have a similar respect as, as concerns of controllability. But uh, nowadays it's vastly different. Uh, with the current fighters, you have to be a computer expert before you can get the most out of the airplane. They still fly the same, but in order to make it do what you wish it to do, it requires a lot of training. Hoover was gaining invaluable experience, but his goal was to fly combat missions. So uh, when did you get into the Spitfire as a combat pilot? What was, how did that come about? Well, I kept requesting combat at, at every opportunity. And I once thought I was headed for combat. And it turned out that uh, I got sidetracked because they were starting a ferry command in, in Algiers, when Algiers, right after Algiers fell. And I went there thinking I was going off to a fighter outfit. And a, a gentleman that I had gotten to know by the name of Marvin McNichol, he was a colonel at the time, had wanted me to, to join his 52nd fighter group. And he told me he had a slot for me anytime I could get the transfer. So that's really where I thought I was going, only to find that they so were starting this ferry command. And I was only a flight officer, but I was running the thing. And uh, I reported to a Colonel Epley, who was the really in control of everything. He was the commanding officer, but I was in charge of all the pilots, and I had captains and majors, all ranks uh, above me, and yet I was telling them what to do and checking them out on all the different airplanes that we would ferry from Algiers to the front lines uh, as the losses occurred. So you were a sergeant pilot, a flight officer, as they were called, basically checking out these other uh, Regular officers in many yes. cases. Yes. One of my most 
fascinating experiences early on was in fighter training because I had more experience than all the rest. They put me, they made me a flight leader. And I recall this just as if it were yesterday. I had a flight of six airplanes, including myself. And they were either lieutenants or captains or ma and one major. So I, I was leading them on a cross-country flight to Morrison Field down in Florida. And uh, this was down in the Miami area from over at, uh, at uh, Pinellas County Airport, which was on the Gulf Coast. And we arrived there and, and taxied in and I got out of the airplane and the, one of the, the base commander came up and he said, Sergeant, he said, you're in a lot of trouble. And I said, what about? And he said, you know we have an order and an edict on this base that enlisted men will not taxi the airplanes. And I said, well, Colonel, I said, uh, I've got a problem. I said, I'm the flight leader. And about that time, the officers all came over to ask how their formation had been. <laughs> he was still chewing on me. <laughs> they said, uh, Colonel, this, uh, this is our flight leader. And he had never seen a sergeant pilot before. But it worked uh, with the bomber pilots. Uh, I had many friends who were, they were the captain of the ship, only they were sergeants, and all the rest of the people were above them in rank. It's kind of an unusual situation, but that was wartime. Thank you. I, I didn't mean to digress, but uh, that's all right. So uh, you um, you thought you were going to the 52nd group, and then you were placed in this ferry command. Well, I thought I was going to the 52nd. I ended up in the ferry command. And I had uh, led a flight of uh, P-40s to Lakata, Sicily when it first fell, uh, when we first invaded uh, over there. And I went into the operations tent, and General Joe Cannon was in there. And he was a real hands-on general. He flew a, uh, a P-40 or a P-51 or whatever. And he, he came over to me, and I was handling all the paperwork on the transfer of the airplanes and was scheduled to take the pilots back in a B-25 back to Algiers for the next trip. And he thought I'd been on combat. And he said, My flight officer, he said, uh, how'd the mission go? And I said, General, I'd sure like to talk to you about it. And he said, well, fine. And I said, could we have some privacy? And so we walked outside the tent and I started telling him of my background and that I really wanted combat and that I had enough hours by this point in time to be rotated back to the States. But I didn't want to do that, I wanted combat. And he said, uh, well, what have you been flying? And I told him and I said, General, I said, I, I don't mean to be boasting, but I can hit the target four consecutive times out of four consecutive loops, and you know how round the loop has to be in order to be able to hit that target. And he said, I sure do. And I said, and beyond that, sir, I can hit it upside down. And he said, you can? And I said, yes. And he said, well, uh, you'll get your combat. And he said, within two weeks. And so two weeks went by and I heard nothing. Three weeks went by, four weeks. Finally, I received a call from a sergeant that was in the office of this Colonel Epright, who was my commanding officer at the time. And he said, your orders have been here on the Colonel's desk for two weeks now. 
and uh, he doesn't intend to let you accept them. And so then I had to really start plotting how I could get those orders. So I got somebody to call up and say uh, to the colonel that uh, that uh, flight officer has not been transferred and uh, we've got to get him over there to combat. And so I went in to talk to the colonel and I said, uh, they've talked to me about these orders. And he said, well, he said, I'm not going to give them to you. And I said, well, but I've been told by General Cannon that I was supposed to go to combat. And he said, all right, I'll give them to you. But he said, you're making the mistake of your life. He said, you'll get shot down and you'll probably get killed. And he said, if you stay with me, you'd be the most experienced pilot in the war. I could get you promoted. And he said, I could get you an assignment at Wright Field because I know that's where you'd like to go. And I thanked him very profusely. And he said, you can't go to combat until you check somebody out in the B-25. And I said, yes, sir. So I immediately organized the people that were underneath me, though they were higher ranking. And I took a couple of them along and let them fly the B-25 from time to time going to uh, Palermo where it, that had just fallen. And the 52nd Fighter Group were there. And when I got there, I just unloaded my gear and I said, you're checked out. <laughs> I reported to Marvin McNichol, who was a colonel at the time, and uh, life was just wonderful. Uh, he knew this background and he called a whole fighter group together and he said, uh, we've got an exceptional, exceptional pilot who's just joined us and we can all learn from him. And he said, but if I catch anybody else doing what I'm permitting him to do, I'm going to ground you. But we can all learn from him. So every time I'd fly, if I had any fuel left, I'd put on a demonstration for them. And uh, it was like that until I was shot down. So you, this is where you, you started doing the demonstrations with the 52nd group? Uh, well, I was actually doing it while I was uh, doing the test work. And uh, I would go up to the front lines while I was uh, with some of the airplanes that I was testing. For instance, I went to the P-38 outfits, and the routine that I performed with the Shrike is one that I did with the P-38. Only it was a lot easier with the P-38 because it was designed for high G, whereas the Shrike is a very low G airplane, so you have to handle it with kid gloves and, and have to be very careful all the time. But that's where the, the aerobatics uh, uh, demonstration started was when I was testing them out of the crates over there in Africa. So the 52nd was flying uh, Spitfires at this time? Mm -hmm. They were Spitfire 9s? They were Mark 5s and we had 9s for scramble. It would have been a different war for me if I'd been in a 9 instead of a 5. What was the Spitfire like? It was a delightful airplane. It didn't keep up with the war though. It was designed as an island defender to just intercept, point intercept, get up there and, and get up quickly, turn tightly, and knock the enemy down. But no range. And it couldn't go very far with the bombers, and as soon as they would turn back, the bombers would be eaten alive by the enemy fighters. Until the P-51 came along, uh, they had a pretty easy time of it, and we had terrible losses. So much so that I, I think had the P-51 long-range airplane not come along, the, the trend of the war could have been vastly different because I'm not sure the, the general public would have accepted the, and suffered the losses that were taking place. Uh, they weren't really known over here at the time. And I learned that from Generals Doolittle and Aker and 
Spots and some of the others who were the commanding things back in those days. I was given credit for two two one nineties. Uh, one of them was just a piece of cake. He was. Uh, I was in a turn and I. I was straight and level rather. I was in a turn and he went. He was too fast and he went by me and I just rolled out and there he was right in front of me just filling the windshield. So it was an easy kill. But the losses were enormous until the Mustang came along. And then they could stay with the bombers all the way to Berlin and the in-depth targets. The war changed from that point on. But the war ended abruptly for Bob Hoover on February 9, 1944, when he was shot down by a German ace during a dogfight over the Mediterranean Sea. Tell us about the day you were shot down and what, what happened, essentially. You were a Spitfire. Well, it's, it's fresh in my memory simply because just yesterday I was digging out some information. Uh, there's a German artist who's very famous in Germany who had asked if he could do a painting of my getting shot down. And he had done an awful lot of research. And he even had the exact time of the day I was shot down. He had the, the combat records from the Germans, and he had the combat records from the U.S. So it's, it's a clear picture in great detail. Uh, the mission, before I was shot down, I'd made a direct hit with a little 250-pound bomb right in the middle of a ship. And uh, this was, was all a matter of the intelligence records. And on the mission I was shot down, we were carrying 250-pound bombs and really never expecting to hit uh, though we were getting phenomenal successes, and the reason being we were diving vertically. We were eliminating all of the arrows that are normally associated with dive bombing. If you can go straight down and you have no wind, then your chances of hitting the target are pretty good. But our targets were moving. They were ships, though they weren't moving very fast. You had to have an awful lot of luck to put one in the, in the actual ship itself. But uh, the outfit I was with were very successful. Uh, in damage, doing a lot of damage, but I actually sunk it with a 250-pound bomb, which was just beyond my comprehension that that little bit of dynamite would do it. Must have gone down the stack or something. Well, it went right down the middle, right in the middle of the ship, and it, it exploded. Uh, but the mission I was shot down on was a, the same type. It was a flight of four spits, and they were Mark Fives, and we had belly tanks that were like old-time bathtubs with the legs on them, that kind of a shape. And they were in a low drag area right underneath the cockpit. And you had a, one, a single handle that you pulled to release that tank. And you had to release it when you engaged in combat because it had sufficient drag to prevent you from getting any speed at all. We were jumped by uh, six Focke-Wulf 190s. And my wingman, my element leader, was shot down, and I was covering him, trying to get to him. We were all split up. We were dive bombing, and as we pull off the target, when you do vertical dive bombing, you turn to keep your, your gun sight. We had old ring gun, ring B, just like World War One. You just keep twisting until you got it lined up, and then you'd pickle. And that separated all of us on the recovery. And I called out the targets, and I didn't get a response from Montgomery. And so I was in about this position, and the the 190s made their pass on him, and I don't think he ever saw them. He never responded on the radio. And the first one went by him without uh, hitting him. 
and the second one slowed up enough and I watched him burst into flame and by this time I was on the second one and I got him smoking and off he went but the Spitfire with Montgomery and it went straight to the, into the ocean and then I was somebody was up my tail and I'd pull the handle on my tank but it wouldn't release so I was stuck with the drag and an airplane it wouldn't go faster than 215 miles an hour with the throttle all the way to the gate so I ended up turning every time somebody would make a pass at me. This one, 190 caught me with a 90 degree deflection and that's almost an impossible shot. I have learned from this artist that this man was so skilled that he had taken two of the guns out of his 190. He had convinced his commanding officer because he had so many kills at this time that he didn't need the extra guns because he made every bullet count and he was that good. Uh, I always thought it was sheer luck until I heard this story from this artist that he was really that good because I just figured there's nobody could ever get a 90 degree shot but this fellow was that expert and uh, he had he shot down 70 airplanes in World War II and received every decoration the Germans could present him with. But. Uh, that was my day, and uh, he got me, and I caught fire and bailed out. You uh, were in. You were in the. You bailed out over the Mediterranean, and you were picked up by. I was by, by picked up by a, a German Corvette. Uh, while I was in the water, uh, my squadron. I I told him what was going on, uh, that I I was badly damaged before I caught fire. I already been shot up pretty bad on some of the passes that the others were making on me. And they had scrambled. They said the, the Dumbo is scrambled. The Dumbo was a, a small flying boat that they would send out a walrus, it was called. And this would pick you up uh, if you were out at sea, if it possibly could. And they had a, a sailboat with Rolls-Royce engines in it that could go probably 25 knots and it, it looked awful on the outside, it looked like an old fishing rig, but it could really move under power. And they sent both of those out. Squadron then launched uh, six Spitfires to give cover to me while I was in the water. And they lost one Spitfire out of the six while they were covering me. The 190s got back on the scene. But uh, we, we lost uh, three airplanes that day. So you were picked up by a German Corvette and then sent back to, to Germany? And well, they took me into Keynes, and uh, that was my first captivity there. And from there to different places until I ended up in an interrogation camp in Frankfurt, Germany. And from there I was taken to a place called Barth up on the Baltic Sea, Stalag left one. And I was there for 15 and a half months. Who were you liberated by? Well, the Russians were coming through, and they were about 110 miles away to the west at a city called Stettin. And all of that country now is up in uh, Lithuania, up in that, that part of the world. It was, it was in the Russian bloc for all these many years until the curtain fell. Uh, I, I got out uh, two weeks before the war ended. There were no successful escapes from that camp the whole time I was there. When I arrived, there were 1,200 people, and when I left, there were 10,000. And there were numerous attempts at escape. 
though we were told the last several months of the war that we were not to attempt escape anymore with incoming prisoners were being briefed to that extent, that General Eisenhower felt the risk was greater trying to escape than it would be to wait until the war ended and get recovered by the Allies. However, there were many of us that didn't wish to accept those orders. There were 200 of us, in fact, who left uh, the last two weeks of the war before we were liberated, before the camp was liberated. And we were in and out of the Russian lines, and I made my way back. And so you escaped from the prison camp? Well, it wasn't much of an escape because the Germans were deserting because the big guns were, you could hear them all the time, the biggies that the Russians were firing. And the, and the guards were just deserting. Uh, so that where there had been five guards for a given area, it was down to three maybe. And then you could create a pretty easy diversion. Somebody could start a fight or start throwing rocks at the guards and they wouldn't shoot into a crowd of people. So they'd have the attention and off you could go over the fence. And that's the way the 200 of us got out. We were all court-martialed. Uh, the, the papers were drawn up for court-martial for us for disobeying orders. And our General Fairchild in Paris received the orders. And our Colonel Fisher was in the same prison camp with us and he checked in with General Fairchild, whom he had reported to before being shot down. And he's, the General said, what do you think about these court-martial findings? And he said, sir, there's a, a burn box in the back of the building here and I think that's where they ought to go. And he said, well, why don't you take care of that responsibility? <laughs> So you, you elected to stay in the Air Force or the Army Air Corps because you wanted to fly. I mean, a lot of people were getting out of the military in droves. Well, I was very fortunate. When I got out of prison camp, Marvin McNichol was a full colonel on the, on the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. And he had been my commanding officer uh, who had been so great uh, to me while I was uh, still there flying. He had attempted to get me promoted at every opportunity, but they weren't promoting very much back then. But he did a lot of great things for me. And one of the best was getting, he knew I wanted to go to Wright Field and be a test pilot. So he made arrangements to have that happen, make it happen. Uh, he had a friend by the name of General Dent, whom he contacted, and he got the orders cut for me to go there. Uh, it was a, a great thing. I, I can never thank him enough as long as I live. Bob Hoover was transferred to Wright Field in Ohio. In the flight test program, he became close friends with Chuck Yeager. Eventually, Hoover went on to be Yeager's backup pilot in the Bell X-1 program. And he flew chase in a Lockheed P-80 when Yeager first broke the sound barrier. I arrived at Wright Field in September of 45. Everything was there. I mean, there was an air of excitement. Uh... What was it like? Well, it was pretty interesting. Best flying in the whole world. We had every kind of an airplane you could think of, prototypes that had never gotten into production, captured German and Japanese airplanes, and all of the airplanes that, that had been produced during the war. So it was a fighter pilot's paradise. And they would let you fly bombers as 
cargo airplanes as well as uh, fighters. But I chose to be a fighter pilot and a fighter test pilot. What were some of the air, airplanes you flew there in, in, at Wright Path, at Wright Field? Well, one of the first projects I had was the, to complete the dive test, if you can imagine, they had not been completed on the P-47. They were attempting to come up with a device that would eliminate the bad recovery characteristics from a high-speed dive. When you would get up to a, a certain airspeed, the airplane would want to tuck if you took the power off. The answer was to keep the power on to pull out. Well, all of the combat pilots who flew P-47s knew that. But they were working on devices that would aid your recovery. They had a device that was someone had, uh, an aerodynamist had come up with, and it was a flat plate, and it went on the, the stabilizer just ahead of the hinge point for the elevator. And you could raise this flat plate up, and it was about maybe three inches in width, and went the full span of the elevator. Prior to my being on the project, they had lost a couple of pilots. They had an electric motor to drive that, and they were getting to such a low altitude that if that thing didn't work, the yurt went right into the ground. Or one pilot had bailed out and broken his back. At the point I took over, they had a, a manual lever to actuate this flap, and we had different positions. So we were trying to get to the highest Mach number possible. We suddenly started thinking in terms of Mach number, building up to someday going faster than sound. Though we were in compressibility and had photographed that at this point in time, we had cameras mounted in the cockpit looking at the wing, and you could see the buildup, the flow separation. So we were there. The idea was to go as fast as we could and see if we could recover. And it, it worked. This thing really worked. It had a telescoping arm, and I could reach up and pull it, and just have the throttle wide open, pull this thing up, and then start pulling it back to the different settings. And it worked. But finally the airplane dug in, and that was the big problem that the, the pilots had in Europe flying the P-47. If you started to trim and, and then got down at low altitude, it would, then when you did pull out, it would want to come out real quick. and. Uh, or it would tuck the other way. So you had, had a, a two-way problem. In my case, it overgeed the airplane, and the gear doors popped open, and that buckled the wings on the airplane, though they stayed on. And I got it down on the ground, no problem, but the airplane uh, was not flown again after that because it's, it was overstressed. But we went to .83 Mach number, and that's the fastest we'd ever been at that time. I've heard people talk about uh, going supersonic. I remember during the war they talked about Ben Kelsey going supersonic in a P-38. That's just pure hogwash. It, he may have thought he was going supersonic, but that airplane design would come apart at, at supersonic speeds. Uh, there were others. I had a letter just recently from some fellow, and he said he'd been supersonic in a P-51 during the war. Well, it's a myth. There's no way. The, the, I think the P-51 got up to 0.81 uh, when North American was testing it, and that was the maximum speed it ever achieved. It took the X-1 to really do it. Uh, 
Of course, as you know, the F-86 had the capability uh, and did so shortly after uh, Chuck Yeager accomplished the speed of sound record flight. Uh, within a month's time, it was supersonic. But here, you, but straight down. But you got .83 mark at a P-47? Going straight down. And had, at this time, had they put Mach meters in these air, instrumented airplanes, or were they still using them? I think that was probably the only one in existence at that time. The Germans had been working with it for a long time, and I talked with the German pilots uh, that were brought over here. Immediately after the war, they brought a whole contingency of experts out of Germany, engineering people, uh, research people, and some of the test pilots. And they were all confined at right field. And they had passes, they could go into town and that sort of thing. But they were in a confined area. I spent an awful lot of time with them because I wanted to pick their brains, realizing I was, would be evaluating many of their airplanes. And I talked to one pilot who had been flying the ME-162, which was a rocket-powered airplane. And I was scheduled to be the evaluation pilot on that program. Uh, Gus Lundquist did the glide flights towed behind a B-17, and I was scheduled for the, the powered flights. Uh, I never did get to fly it because they finally decided that the fuels were too volatile. The Germans had a lot of failures because of the fuels. and They were toxic, and, uh, and some of their pilots ended up just being dissolved in the cockpit. The fuels would just eat your, any organic thing up if it got on you. They convinced me that they had been to .92 Mach number in that, in that uh, ME-162. I don't know if they really had a, an accurate measurement as to what speed they were going, but they thought they had been there. And they, they must have been terribly fast with that design. And it did have a swept wing. But the F-86 would go supersonic straight down and did so within, I believe, a month. Chuck went faster than sound on October the 14th, and I believe that North American had the airplane to Mach 1 straight down, going straight down uh, sometime in November, before the end of November. They didn't, they didn't start going straight down in the airplane until a month or so after they'd been flying it, and, and that's when it occurred. And even then, I must tell you, I would go out. We had a, we had a game going up at uh, Mirac. We'd go straight down and leave the sonic boom. And we'd try and see who could make the loudest sonic boom. The faster you would go, the louder the boom. And we had a joke going. We had one pilot. Every time he'd come down, he'd say, gee whiz, and he'd tell us what Mach number he'd been to. And How did that sound? And they said, we didn't hear anything. <laughs> and he kept going faster and faster. <laughs> but we had him really foxed. He, he couldn't believe that he wasn't leaving a big boom. <laughs> Getting back to, uh, to right field. Now, the MB-262 was there, and I know that the F-86, the decision to, to change the F-86 wing from a straight wing, the XP-86 at that time, uh, from a straight wing to a swept wing design was was really uh, a momentous uh, event. I mean, in terms of subsequent history, because the XP eighty six would have been a a an, an indistinct, undistinguished 
airplane, whereas that yes. swept factor made it all the difference. Now, the, the, did they talk about the Me two six two wing when you when you talked to these German scientists? Was that uh, did they talk about wing design at all, or was it just? Uh, uh, they were they were convinced that the swept wing was the way to go. And the the, the Me two six two was there, but you did not fly it. I was scheduled to fly it, and it it. Uh, it was lost the flight before I was scheduled to take it up. I was very disappointed about that because I thought it was a pretty crackerjack airplane in those days. When I'd see them fly in Germany while I was sitting on the ground, they were moving. As it turned out, it was still a faster airplane than the P-80. And I did some work uh, comparison with one of the other pilots flying the 262. And at full throttle, he could move out on you but he had no controllability. They didn't have any boost. And you, with both hands at high speed, you could hardly turn at all. You'd have to slow down to turn. Whereas with the P-80, you had a, a boosted system and you could maneuver, even though you're going fast. Uh, when did you get to fly the P-80? The first jet I flew was the P-59 there at Wright Field. And then I was uh, assigned to the P-80. What and was the P-59 like versus the P-80? Much slower airplane. It was about 350 wide open. It would compare to the Heinkel 162. It was about 350. And both of them would get stiff on the controls. And then the P-80 with its boosted system uh, made life a little easier. But we were still pretty primitive back in those days. We didn't have any pressurization. We didn't have any heat for the windshield and canopy. At altitude, you'd be sitting there in that P-80 day or night, and you'd be frosted over solid so you couldn't see out. And you'd put your thumb up on the, on the front side windshield to get just a peephole, just to be able to see outside. So it was pretty primitive. And the engine life was pretty short, too. Uh, the first P-80s that I flew uh, had an engine life of, I don't think we got 10 hours out of them. I think maybe five hours. But that was true also with the F-86. The first F-86s, we were changing engines pretty early. And then they made refinements. Flight test operations moved to Muroc Air Force Base in the California desert. The field would eventually become Edwards Air Force Base. When were you transferred to Muroc and, and uh, how did that come about? Well, we would go out to Muroc for special programs, flight test programs. As a matter of fact, that's where I did the evaluations on the Heinkel 162. Once I was assigned to the X-1 program, all of us on the project uh, were transferred on temporary duty to Miroc, yet we would be flying other airplanes. I brought out the uh, prototype straight-wing F-84 and I was testing that uh, when I had an engine failure, a fire, and it burned away the control rods. I was on the X-1 program at the time, and scheduled to fly it next, as a matter of fact. And I tried to get out of it, an ejection seat wouldn't fire. It was the first ejection seat we had in our forces, both Air Force or Navy, and it was a copy of the Heinkel 162 ejection seat. The Germans had designed that seat because the scoop and the engine were above the cockpit, just aft, and it was felt you'd get sucked into the scoop, 
if you tried to just bail out. So they designed this ejection seat, and it was a pretty good system if it worked. And in my case, it didn't. And when I went out, I went right into the tail and ended up breaking both legs and getting banged up pretty bad. So that pulled me off of the program. And by the time I got back on flight status, I had an opportunity to do some other things and uh, elected to choose that because now, by this time, you see the speed of sound had already been accomplished with the F-86 going straight down. And there were a lot of other airplanes coming along. So let me get this straight, Bob. You you were you you bailed out of an F eighty four while you were still on the X one program. You yes. were the backup pilot for for Chuck Yeager. Yes. <clears throat> Could you tell us a little bit about the X one program? I mean, when you were in that, I mean, you were you had have you done glide tests in it? Well, Chuck did some glide tests in it. Yes, I was on the program and. Uh, Al Boyd uh, found out that I had pulled a buzz job at, at Springfield, Ohio. And he called me into his office, and uh, this was before Chuck came on the program. And he said, did you buzz Springfield Airport on August the 19th or whatever the date was? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I know two things about you. You're honest, but you're irresponsible. And he said, uh, I won't tolerate that. And he said, I won't take you off the program because I think you know too much, but I'm gonna find somebody else. And, uh, and he did, and he found the best in the whole world. Uh, I don't think there's ever a living pilot that could, who could have done a better job than my friend Chuck Yeager. He was superb, and he had his share of high risk, and boy, that came with the territory back then. Now, were you, were you in the air the day that Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, or were you in the hospital from your accident with the F-18? No, that happened. Uh, I, my accident was long after that. Oh. It wasn't until, uh, oh, toward the end of November, and uh, mid-November, I guess. And Chuck had uh, managed to exceed the speed of sound on uh, the 14th of October. Were you flying that day as a chase or anything? I was high chase. And Chuck went by me, we'd, we'd planted. Uh, Dick Frost was flying low chase, and I was on high chase. And I wanted to get a picture out along those P-80, and we wanted to get a picture to put on President Truman's desk. As he went by, I got the picture of the first photograph at high altitude of diamond shockwaves, and it's a famous picture. I think I've got it over here on the wall. And sure enough, somebody flew all night long and got that back and was on President Truman's desk the next day. Of the actual? The actual photograph when he went by me. So um, when, uh, when did you start working with the F-86 program? If the... I didn't get involved in the 86 program <clears throat> until I joined North American Aviation, and that was in 1950. Prior to that, I had uh, gotten a, uh, uh, an opportunity to go to Marshfield. Marvin McNichol was always my <laughs> guardian angel. He was helping me out, it seemed like, every time I turned around. He told me that a, a colonel by the name of Frank Perigo would like to have me come out 
and joined the first fighter group at March Field. And they were equipped with uh, P-80s and were anticipating switching to F-86s. And he told me I could get promoted very quickly if I came out there. And at this point in time, I was thinking of, that I would like to stay in the Air Force forever. And I accepted that uh, transfer, and it was everything that I had expected. But while there, I kept getting phone calls from people saying they'd like to have me join them as a civilian test pilot. I had a call from General Motors. They were testing jet engines at the Allison Division of General Motors in Indianapolis. So a Mr. Ed Newell was the vice president and general manager of the Allison Division of General Motors. He called up and said he'd like to interview me, and, and could I see him? I met him at a big hotel up on the, it's called the, it was called the Arrowhead Hotel. And it was a big resort for 50 years, I guess. And I was stationed at March Field, so it was a short trip for me. So my wife and I went up and visited with him, and he hired me. And he told me that I was the highest paid 27-year-old in General Motors Corporation. And that was a pretty big treat. So I went back to Indianapolis and I tested jet engines for a year. And they were very, very good to me. Though I had a lot of high risk. I had engines just <laughs> do me in uh, quite a few times. Uh, I had dead stick landing so often you couldn't believe it. What, air, what airplane were you flying? Well, I flew the Grumman built an F-9. And uh, the first F-9s, they built three of them, and I had one of them there. And I was testing right along with the experimental testing back there. When they went into production, they went into it, they used a different engine. Though I tested the, the first one with the Allison engine, and the F-84s, uh, we had a P-80. We had the uh, a P-80 with a, an F-94 tail and a large Allison engine in it. I did the first flights on that. That was the afterburning? Uh-huh. And we had uh, McDonald uh, airplanes. I can't, that F-4, the first one, first jet that they built. We had a P-75 with uh, contra-rotating propellers, an experimental airplane that never went into production. And we were using it for a test bed on propellers. It had a big X engine in it, one of the largest inline engines, I guess, has ever, that has ever been built. And the five-engine B-17. So those were the stable of airplanes that I was flying while there. I decided that I wanted to get a better, get, a, get more education. So I left there, went back to college, and I started getting more phone calls from companies wanting to hire me. And I got to thinking if I were smart, I had the feeling that it, as a test pilot I could make a lot of money, but one day I couldn't test, and then I'd become an engineer and that pay would drop off dramatically. So if I went back to school and got, got a, a, my, I really wanted a PhD, I thought then I can go back to test flying and I'll never have that, that dip. And that was my planning and motivation. But I, I kept getting these calls. Boeing lost the test pilot on the B-47. The canopy came off and cut his head off, their chief test pilot. So they wanted to hire me in that capacity. I recommended Tex Johnson, who took the job, and uh, 
boy, did he ever do a bang-up job for them over all these many years. So I, I stayed there, and finally uh, I got calls from Boeing, Northrop, uh, Convair, and then North American called. And I told Colleen, I said, gee whiz, I can't turn them down. They built the best airplanes I've ever flown in my life. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bob Hoover moved on to become a civilian experimental test pilot for North American Aviation. And he also worked his way back into combat during the Korean War. In the next episode of Warriors in Their Own Words, Bob Hoover takes us through the decades ahead in his long, illustrious career in flight. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Warriors in Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by The Honor Project, Heroes of Our Nation on Record, narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by Heroes of Our Nation on Record, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.